Welcome to the Spencer Fernando Show. Our guest today is Irvin Student. Irvin is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Global Brief Magazine and president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions. He's also the chair of the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids Post-Pandemic. Irvin has put together the Canada Science and Policy Committee to exit the pandemic, which was created in January of this year, and it brings together the country's leading scientists, doctors, and policy professionals across the disciplines from all regions of Canada to advise on the content and choreography of a national exit plan from the pandemic for our country. And Irvin, it's great to have you with us today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So what, uh, maybe just go into detail about your yourself and then kind of what inspired you to put together the plan and, and why you feel it's important. Well, I wear several hats, but uh, I guess the primary one for purpose of our discussion uh, to which I've been looking forward is the that I preside the Institute for 21st Century Questions. I'm co-founder of the Institute. It is a major think tank in Canada, but more than a think tank, we're a vision and strategy tank. So we go beyond what your conventional think tank, either in the not-for-profit or in the university sector would do. We actually try to solve uh, wicked problems nationally and internationally. And needless to say, over the last two years, we've been extremely busy because there've <laughs> been a lot of problems starting in our own country. Uh, but we go beyond borders as well. We've been uh, active in floating uh, algorithms for resolution of many global problems. Really practically, we bring parties together uh, without any interest or without any partisanship to solve these problems on the ground. And we have uh, good networks. Uh, over the course of the pandemic, we created the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids, which is really the uh, something of which I'm I'm proud. But it, it tackles the most devastating problem of the pandemic people don't realize is that we have half a billion children around the world who are in no school at all over the course of the pandemic and in many cases permanently that is they're neither homeschooled nor pod schooled they're out they can be in grade one they can be in grade five grade nine but they're going in many cases to dark places half a half a Sorry, 200 million in India, 20 million in the United States, and 200,000 in our own country. We call them third bucket kids. So we created a, a worldwide commission with over 60 countries on all continents on it. That's through our institute. Uh, we work on the Arctic. We work on, even on the, uh, the Russia-West-Ukraine problem. We work on the Middle East. In Canada, we have been very active on uh, trying to figure out how the country should exit the, the pandemic. And what we noticed diagnostically is that through our science interests, we actually hosted one of the early vaccine summits, brought together a lot of the, the experts to figure out what, what's going on with the vaccination, what's it about. We noticed that the scientists are clinically very strong and professional, but they stink at public policy. I mean, they really mm -hmm. stink. The reason they stink is that that's not their craft. Mm -hmm. Public policy, people should appreciate, is just as complex as science, just different different domain. On the other hand, policy people have limited literacy in science. Mm -hmm. Not physicists, they're not biologists, they're not uh, biochemists, and, and so on. And over the course of the pandemic, the scientists have been operating in solitude from the policy community, and they've been given a pass on policy mistakes and a veto on policy decisions way outside of their immediate expertise. Probably they've gained a certain confidence 
overconfidence in their ability just through intellect to solve problems that are really wicked policy problems. And more attention than they've ever gotten before, too. More attention, more attention for sure. And I'm not going to ascribe blame one way or the other. What happens is that the scientific community all of a sudden had monopoly power on policy decisions, which they'd never encountered. And the policy community, though, is responsible for the exit. We have a few science tables across the country, science tables, that have not performed well, and that's because, as I mentioned, they are mostly studying the problem. They are treating it as a science project, and they understand follow the science is literally just empirically telling us what, what's happening with the virus and poking here and there with what I call episodic policy ideas for what we ought to do in response. But if we're going to exit the pandemic, and exit we must because other countries, senior countries are exiting or have exited mm -hmm. speed, it's a policy lead. It's a policy lead as it always has. And so what we decided to do is through under the aegis of the Institute for 21st Century Questions to bring together leading scientists and doctors and leading policy experts and thinkers and practitioners from a host of disciplines, economics, social science, education policy, psychology, criminology, business, and we put them together, except it's a policy lead and the science feeds into the policy. And what we do it through the National, uh, the Canada Science Policy Committee to exit the pandemic is we design a choreography of national exit. And we'll talk about that, I'm, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But it's a policy lead. It's properly national, informed by the science. And it is systems based. That is, it appreciates, uh, I think uniquely, that COVID is but one of eight, now we calculate, systems crises in the country. And we must exit at the same time from all the crises. Whereas we imagine on a pure, purely scientific brief, that COVID is the be all and end all. It is our catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So masks, mask wearing will solve all our all our <laughs> all our problems and taking off the mask is the exit. Mm -hmm. Now that is elegant on Twitter and Facebook and in kitchen conversation, but from a policy perspective, I'm a policy person and policy strategist, it's pure nonsense. And we've just been able to delude ourselves through through uh, Twitter consumption that that is somehow opposite whereas other countries now we see the uk ireland uh, netherlands all the scandinavian countries israel singapore they're exiting with uh, across the systems or in some cases they didn't collapse the systems as much we're still stuck on studying covid as a science project without realizing that the exit has to happen through a specific choreographer so that's the role of the of the committee we've now declared that the pandemic is endemic and issued, which I think is the base of the conversation, a proper national exit plan from the pandemic that is extremely detailed across the systems that we'll discuss and across the country. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the eight uh, challenges or crises facing the country. Maybe you could expand more on that and how they're related to the pandemic and how they were possibly in place beforehand. Of course. Well, the country is very big. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone must realize that we have the second largest country in the world, the largest country in the world is at war now in, in, in Eastern Europe, but we're second. Trying to get even bigger. We are, <laughs> yeah, they're trying to get bigger, but we are huge to begin with. I mean, so that uh, people realize we are actually territorially Canada 
as big as the Roman, Persian, and Ottoman empires combined. That's how big Canada is. So to reduce that to just COVID and COVID counts and ICU counts is an intellectual nonsense to begin with. We ought to always have had a systems understanding of the country. We just weren't under any historic pressure to be able to force ourselves to think of our country as it is. Now, the COVID pressure, the COVID shock, then collapsed several systems across the country. And that's why we reduce it to these seven or eight systems. The systems are COVID public health. It was an objective pandemic, so it remains a crisis. But when it reached endemic stage, it's, it's not as important a crisis as compared with the others that I'm gonna articulate. Non-COVID public health, so that is everything related to human well-being and the health system apart from COVID. And that is the majority health uh, health uh, preoccupation today. So here we're talking about surgeries, diagnoses, treatments, mental and physical, everything related to the well-being and touching the health system, doctors, hospitals, not related to COVID, cancer, heart conditions, mental illness, obesity, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, people know that intimately, and it's obviously gone up uh, through multiple factors over the course of the last two years. So that's the second uh, system. Third system, the economy and business. It happens that we're broadly familiar with those three systems, except we don't think about it as systems. Fourth, education. Education is a provincial jurisdiction, but it is a national calamity. So the education system is the fourth crisis. I think in my, in my estimation, as I mentioned, the largest catastrophe of the, of the of the pandemic and maybe we'll have if we have time i'll explain what what happened there mm -hmm. fifth is national unity you're in manitoba and 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 you'll appreciate that that the um the national unity is much less cohesive much less strong coming out of the pandemic it is an existential problem for canada because mm -hmm. like all aging countries we could unravel fast coming out of the pandemic all the more so, so that's the fifth one institutions Sixth, here I'm talking specifically institutions of government and public institutions, uh, the trust and, uh, and efficacy of which have eroded. I'm also talking about media institutions, information institutions, which largely collapsed in their ability to report realities on the ground to decision makers across the second largest country in the world during our biggest emergency. We just were not able to tell our stories, so we had media institutions that were functioning from Zoom rooms, the decision makers who were functioning from Zoom rooms, and we weren't able to report the crumbling of business, the ouster of huge numbers of children from school. Even I remember the, the at the nadir of the, the, the first lockdown in April of 2020, Spencer, you'll recall that we had uh, a biggest gun massacre in Canadian history after Ecole Polytechnique in mm -hmm. Nova Scotia. And that barely made a dent in the national consciousness because everyone was functioning from different media outlets and Canadian media were just simply not able to report our own reality to ourselves. So media and, and public institutions generally, um, including, by the way, hospitals and, and doctors. Uh, six, the social fabric, a deteriorating social fabric across the country. Used to be that I could go from the suburbs of Toronto to Manitoba or to Whitehorse, Yukon, or to St. John's, Newfoundland, Labrador, and I would still understand what the basic norms of behavior were, 
But mm -hmm. here I can go school to school, business to business, neighborhood to neighborhood, even household to household. And we've collapsed a lot of those norms. We're going to have to reconstitute it's a lot of social conflict, social tension. And we can talk about why that came to be, but that's a major crisis if we're going to function as a, as a country and be an efficient social space across the second largest country in the world. And the final one, of course, is now in the news international. We've uh, had uh, we were internationally weak before the pandemic, but we didn't do anything international at all over the course of two years. We sat in our Zoom rooms, the prime minister, no less. <laughs> we had no diplomatic relations and the world around us collapsed. The institutions began to collapse, the processes of travel, of diplomatic relations, of communication. And that can't be left to its own devices too long before it begins to impede on our own capacity to survive. And now we see that in, in spades. All of those things, Spencer, are eight balls in the air at the same time. Hmm. The collapse of any of which can actually result in much greater death within Canada and, cal and calamity than COVID alone. Imagine if all the business in Canada all of a sudden crumbled, more mm. people would die quickly than, than the pandemic managed to, to erase or harm over two years. The same thing with, with national unity. If the country collapses, God forbid, then we will see what true misery is like. So we need to juggle these all at the same time. Concurrently, it is not as we imagine on Twitter, first we'll do the pandemic, mm -hmm. and, and gradually we'll tend to everything. Mm -hmm. Then once we're done with the pandemic, we'll tend to the business. Or in the reverse, we say, first, let us take the masks off. Let's remove vaccine passports, and then we can tend to, to business. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work like that because uh, businesses crumble in the meantime, and many businesses have crumbled over the course of our, of our two-year stupor. So what we propose in the exit plan is a, a number of paradoxes. First, the systems thinking as opposed to episodic thinking. And secondly, energy right at the front end. So we exit, but we exit with huge human energy across all the eight systems, like a burst of national mobilization, as opposed to saying, well, we'll zombie out of the pandemic. We'll do it out of an abundance of caution. First, let me feel comfortable taking my mask off. Then I'll tend to fixing the education system. These are all Facebook positions or Twitter positions, but they're not policy positions because even if we immediately take off the masks, or remove all mandates, uh, we still have 200,000 kids across the country who are not in school at all. We have huge learning losses for the rest of the student body. That's catastrophic for, for the future of the country. We still have tens of thousands of businesses that disintegrated. So people in many cases don't have a business to which to return. We still have national unity that is broken. We have borders between provinces and territories, regulatory borders, psychological borders. And, and and so on. So all of this needs injection at the front end, huge energy that is the counter thesis to the lack of energy in the system over the last two years. Mm -hmm. It seems like much of our political system is based on people avoiding basically most of the issues you talked about, right? We tend to focus on very surface level issues and partisanship, and I'm relatively partisan myself as well, but it seems like the deeper issues really don't get discussed. And I'm wondering what your feeling is on first how we could get those issues to be discussed by political parties and second what effect do you think what's happening in you know russia and ukraine will have on just the psyche of canadians kind of leaving one era of crisis and just immediately jumping into another start with the latter mm -hmm. um paradoxically the 
Russia-Ukraine Western conflict with the invasion but now by Russia should end our pandemic um, definitively. And this is a, a strange paradox in the mm -hmm. sense, from a systems perspective, now we should understand the pandemic really is minor. I mean, within Russia and Ukraine, all the masks went off quickly and they went to war. Mm -hmm. So nobody is walking around on eggshells worried about dying from COVID. So from a systems perspective, comparatively, we should understand that, that the pandemic ain't much and it ain't much for us either in the in the comparison of, of the major problems at our feet, including amongst the eight systems crises that we have. The secondly is that second point is that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is a physical invasion. It really is physical, whereas we're still living the pandemic mostly in the virtual space. The anxiety is mostly mm -hmm. in the virtual. So part of the exit from the pandemic is a reassertion of the physical. That is also a part of the, the cunning of, of the national exit plan that we do. There's a lot of physical, physical mm -hmm. at the outset. Physi uh, physicians must get back in the office and treat patients in, in person. The civil services of the country, which are the biggest employers, in Manitoba, just as in Ottawa, just as in Ontario and Quebec, they must all return to the ministries and agencies and departments in the physical. Once we do that, once the kids are playing outside and we hear them singing, and once we have festivals and restaurants, especially in spring and summer, then we forget the virtual hysteria. But the invasion in Eastern Europe should accelerate that because we see it in the physical. So that's the that's on that. On, on the big problems, um, this has a, a prehistory. I mean, it precedes obviously the pandemic. We've not been thinking about major problems in Canada for several decades now. And I worked at the start of my career for three different prime ministers uh, of different political stripes in the Privy Council office. So I saw the dearth of real thinking, dearth of policy ambition, and what I call detailed thinking. We're not detailed thinkers in Canada. We tweet and that's it, but there's nothing beyond <laughs> the surface level. There's no mm -hmm. beyond the thesis statement, beyond taking off the mask. There's no there there. There's no logic path. That has a, a, a few sources. One is that Canada struggled before the pandemic to have really major problems. We did not have amongst the nations huge existential problems. We've had 150 years plus of general stability and peace. This is totally exceptional. Mm -hmm. It's exceptional amongst countries and exceptional amongst the continents. North America was the only continent in the 20th century essentially spared large-scale warfare from Canada, the United States primarily. Mm -hmm. Every other country had collapse. And I calculated that countries tend to last in the modern form 60 years before they either collapse through war or a constitutional slash civil war crisis or some catastrophe like, like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've got 150 plus years, which means we imagine that tomorrow is like today. So if tomorrow is like today, we don't really have to think very hard. Mm -hmm. The pandemic exposed our country, if I may be direct, as highly educated, but unthinking. Unthinking because we're not able to think beyond the surface level that you describe. I mean, what happened in the pandemic? We started this zombie discourse about COVID counts and death counts and and ice and vaccination counts. And we were we were hypnotized by this for a variety of reasons we can discuss, but we weren't able to structure the problems at our feet. Whereas other countries, less educated, 
but that had a history of hardship, including, by the way, Ukraine and Russia, which were much more sans froid about the pandemic. Before the, before the war, you'd actually want to be in Ukraine or Russia during the pandemic because they were relaxed. They didn't collapse their business sector, they didn't collapse their social structure, they didn't collapse their, their, their education structure. I mean, the kids were kids there. But we were, were more educated, many countries less educated, reacted with much more proportionality because they said they looked at the profile Spencer of the, the pandemic and after three months they said you know what thank God it's a pandemic but it ain't much mm -hmm. we'll protect the vulnerable if we can the aged the comorbid the rest of society must must go on it's not a war and it wasn't a war and so we overreacted we over sentimentalized and to answer directly your question, how do we get back? There are only two ways. One is a proper reaction to hardship, say that this can never happen again in Canada because the next time it will be the death of us. If this is how we react to catastrophe, the next catastrophe will big, be bigger and it will ruin us. So that's how intelligent countries react to calamity. They say, okay, noted, we, we were lucky to survive that one. This can't happen again. I'm not sure we're drawing that conclusion. I'm not sure we've, we've even understood what's happening at our feet. And some of those secret lessons are in the in the national exit plan. For instance, on the schools, the lesson must be, we never close the bloody schools again, ever, ever. As soon as you close the schools, calamity. On business, you do everything possible never to close a business. Because why would people start a business in a country that closes business on a dime? Why would mm -hmm. people trust that you're not gonna do that? Why would people invest capital? They're not here for fun. And that has also not been learned. So those things are all there. The other part of a country becoming serious and thinking in detail as, as you commend is leadership. I mean, if we were exposed as a, as a highly educated, unthinking country at core, the leadership at most level has, has been exposed as ballast. I mean, ballast at the political level, ballast at, at, in many cases in professional leadership, ballast in the university level for sure, the media class, intellectual leadership, we were not able to rise to the occasion, despite being well-intentioned and educated. And I hope that doesn't repeat itself because you'll find much more interesting analytics, much better sense of humor, again, in countries less educated formally than us. They quickly understood their circumstances and the leadership was able to rise in many cases, not in all cases, mm -hmm. to, to the right standard of of, uh, of reaction. Yeah, I do find, you know, what you said about kind of 150 years in many ways of Canada being luckier than almost anywhere else in the world. And it's really it filters out to the way a lot of people here. It's almost like they can't conceive of things going wrong. And I look at the Arctic, for example, right? I mean, Russia's been building up there. You look at the way you know that region of the earth is changing there's going to be a huge race for resources and trade routes and you know so china's even getting involved and we're basically doing nothing you know we have no military up there we don't even seem to to think it's going to be an issue i think britain has had to step in and say hey you guys need some help uh, defending this area because you're not doing much of it and so i what do you think it'll take for people to kind of wake up do you think it's going to take a real disaster hitting in canada um, whether militarily or an economic collapse, or do you think people will be able to kind of correct the course in this country before it gets too late? I'm now skeptical that we're drawing, as I mentioned, the right mm -hmm. conclusions from disaster. 
part because we're educated but not thinking properly. It's a lot of work to think. Mm-hmm. So you and I and our fellow citizens are in the same boat. One not not to get insulted. One one not not to be insulted when I say we're an unthinking country. What do you mean you can't think? Well, thinking takes a lot of work. You have to sit. You have to analyze. You have to study. You have to learn lessons, by the way, from not just your own history, but from all over the world, including from countries that are very much unlike us. And by the way, that's the best way to learn lessons. So if someone is other than you at the margins, you can differentiate and say, well, how can I import that lesson? That's we don't do that. We're surface level mm-hmm. and we jump to conclusions. We're a little incurious. So I think actually if another calamity hits or if international pressures or these eight crises I described really are not tended to with the requisite energy that we propose in the in the exit committee, uh, then only leadership can save us. So have to hope for a new generation of leaders. It doesn't need to be big political, federal, professional, heroic leadership. It takes a small school of people to really bring the country to the next level. The Arctic is a good example. I've done a lot of work and thinking on, on the Arctic as with our institute. Let me describe for your, your listeners what an exciting Arctic tomorrow looks like and how it actually may save us. It's not in the exit plan, but it is uh, indirectly inspiring some of the, the energy mm-hmm. in the exit plan. It is a next step, if you will. The Arctic, ter- let's say, the, the I'm, I'm going to exclude Churchill, Manitoba with, <laughs> with respect, but, 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 but it's, it's, it's part of it. If you take Yukon, which is the size of France, and NWT, which is the size of uh, Germany, Ukraine, and France, and then you, Nunavut, which is bigger than both of them combined, all together, the size of our three territories, 40% of our territory, is almost exactly that of the European Union, the size of the European Union. That's 40% of our territory. So when I speak to young people about it, it's exciting because, wow, mm-hmm. country's big. It's bigger than a Twitter feed. Now, you mentioned Russia, which is our neighbor to the north, friendly or hostile, it doesn't matter For in the first instance. What's interesting is that they have a buildup. They have something like 18 military bases up there, and their population is 2 million, and they have huge political attention on the Arctic. They know their mental map. They have 17 borders in Russia, 14 land, three maritime borders. They're always thinking about those borders. We imagine that our border is the Ambassador Bridge or the Peace Bridge, the, Amer- the A, the, what I call the A axis, mm-hmm. America. But the R axis, the, the Russia axis, our Arctic, where we hit abut Russia, is much more exciting and it is the future in the following sense. I'm not into the idea that Canada's there to reverse climate change one way or the other. I think our move on climate change is the Arctic. The Arctic opens up objectively. What do we do Like in, as an intelligent country? We shift our imagination northward. And this European Union-sized space, all of a sudden, in my assessment, becomes the center of the world. Center of the world because Canada, through its Arctic, is no longer an isolated part of North America as as we imagine in a confederation or 
part of just a continental relationship with the United States. We're the center of the world and we become the axis for four continents mm -hmm. and a market potentially, not today, but in 10, 15 years time of 2 billion people through the Arctic. Here I'm talking about flights, I'm talking people to people exchanges, infrastructure, sea, air, rail. The problem is, of course, that Ottawa and Toronto don't know the Arctic. Same with Winnipeg, same with Vancouver. And we have for that European Union sized territory, Spencer, a total population of 115,000 people. 115,000, that's the size of Ajax, Ontario, bigger than Brandon, Manitoba. That's the size of our footprint. And as a result, we're not going to do anything there. And we will miss not just the defensive imperative, which is important, but what I call the offensive opportunity. And what I imagine is the offensive opportunity is that a city like Whitehorse or Nuvik or Yellowknife or even Churchill becomes the Singapore of the North. <laughs> and here we're talking about 5 million people eventually in the Arctic, Canadian, with big cities and huge direct flights between Inuvik and Japan, Inuvik and China, Inuvik and Moscow, Inuvik and, and, uh, and Ukraine, Northern Europe, continental United States, but we're at, the, we're at the center now and we're building it. And the reason I propose this is that this is big enough, an idea and a construct and an imperative to mobilize our energies out of our current stupor because we're wallowing out of our pandemic, taking the mask off and looking around. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? My business is closed. The country's not vital. There's no human energy. And this is enough uh, of an opening to capture the imagination of the next generation. I mean, it's, it's a project. It's a national project mm -hmm. that is public sector, private sector, educational institutions, business, military, diplomatic, because of the scale, it is everything. It also happens that through the Arctic, Spencer, we have the central war and peace proposition for this century. I mean, we imagine that Russia and, Euro and Ukraine are battling to the east of us, what I call the E-axis, but actually the main, we're operating off the wrong mental map. They're operating to the north of us. And so our Arctic game is the war and peace game for this century. Same with China. Uh, yet Whitehorse is closer to Beijing than is Sydney, Australia. Hmm. The Australians think they're in Asia. We're in Asia. Now, I'm not going to get into which side is, 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 is pure, which side is impure. I'm just saying objectively in terms of geography, Asia is the center of the world. We're close to it. Russia is the biggest country in the world. We're close to it. America is the is the most powerful economy still coming out of the pandemic. We're close to it. And Europe is critical to the to the uh, war and to war and peace and 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 the, the, the and peaceability in the in the 21st century as it was in the 20th and 19th. And we're close to it. I call this the ACRE game acre ACRE A to the bottom C to 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 uh, to our west E to our right and a above arctic and that becomes like a, what if you do the math a 15 combination game for canada that we need to master and then mm -hmm. it forces us it forces us spencer to think we now have to think on our feet for our lives because the world has suddenly become much more complicated than it was 
over the first 150 years. So that's why I think you're right. Circumstances might force our hand, but leadership will will give us the pressure we need to to do it. If we if we make it out, we may be a major country in our own right. That's a major country is required to survive these wicked circumstances. If we don't, we could get crushed very fast, very, very fast. Or we could become a very deep vassal state, which we take all our cues from Washington, mm-hmm. which itself is a diminishing power, in my view, increasingly unimpressive. So these are major choices, major choices, but I'm not sure we're alive to it in a conscious way yet coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, the idea of having kind of a, a big goal to strive towards could be helpful. I mean, I notice, you know, in much of the discourse in Canada, it's all about the states and it's either a positive comparison or a negative comparison, right? It's either, oh, our healthcare system is so much better than what they have in the states. Of course, that's been called into question by some of the ICU capacity numbers we see uh, in the comparison between the two. But it's like we only think within that kind of pattern, right? Like, oh, are we better or worse than the states in this? And it's like there's an entire world to compare ourselves to and to look at and learn from. And we seem locked into a pattern of just focusing on the U.S. We are, and it's if if you imagine that that the U.S. is a, is a gravitational pull, to get out of that gravitational field, that gravity field, it's going to take a lot of energy. Even though our borders suggest that we must. So if that ACRE game is is correct, I mean, let's take take China and Asia just as a general proposition. Uh, we must pay attention one way or the other. Whether we like it or not is the secondary condition. So the other one is Russia to the north. So that means that axis, the RC axis, by the way, they have a close relationship. We have no relationship with either of them in any deep way and no experts at all on the Russia-China relationship. To move from the comfort zone, the America, to Russia-China, to focus on them one way or the other, it takes huge expenditure of energy. It's much easier to just tweet up, retweet what an American president says or what Fareed Zakaria says one day or 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 Fox News says on a, on a different day. But for purposes of of growing our our own country, it has negligible value. The gain comes from the pain. The pain comes from going to areas that are less comfortable. And the lessons to be extracted are, I insist, not from like minded countries. We don't want to be like non-like-minded countries, but we want to steal their lessons. What are they doing that we don't do well that we can assimilate for our circumstance? Maybe they do infrastructure better. Maybe they do education better. Maybe they do the Arctic better. Maybe they do media better, right? And we, and this, as, as a result, we have to be promiscuous in our in our intellectual and diplomatic thinking, 360 degrees around the world, and steal, 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 and and make our own house better. That is how historically countries in trouble in need of great reform have gone about their business. That is how the Chinese were able to stabilize after 150 years of, of cataclysm. They went around the world, they sent delegations, and they said, who's doing what? Singapore mm-hmm. even more. The Russians did in the, Peter, the Great Period the Japanese and the Meiji uh, Reformation, the Americans when they when they started their their republic. And now it's our turn. It's so we've had good life, but we're going to have to work for it. And working for it really means getting off our duffs, getting out of the Zoom rooms, 
traveling, traveling our country. Most of our decision makers don't have a proper sense even of our own geography. We talked about the Arctic. Most of them have not been there. They don't appreciate the vastness and the opportunity and the imperative. And certainly they've not been to to uh, outside of the American European orbit. They've not been to less comfortable settings where really used the brain functions in being forced to, to work because you have to understand your circumstances. That's when you learn. That's when you learn. On the question of the military, you know, I, I've been for a while an advocate of increased military spending. And I find it's often a tough sell in this country because people will say, oh, well, you know, we can spend it on healthcare or infrastructure instead or education. What do you think is a way to make the case to people that it's important to have a strong national defense, maybe in a way that I guess doesn't come across as aggressive or militaristic, perhaps? It's a. Uh... It's a central question, and I think aside from leadership in Canada, which says we're doing this because we need to survive, we obviously do. Mm -hmm. My own favorite approach, and it's in the in the national exit strategy that we 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 uh, authored as well, is to use different concepts and different vocabulary, rather than one saying I'm against military spending or I'm for it. Right, so this is a binary debate. Come up with a new construct. Construct I worked on for, was for a while, and we worked at it at the institute as well. Is that of a hundred million Canadians? Canada had a hundred million by the end of the century. Now, on a superficial level, one might say, "Well, what about the immigration proposition? What does that mean?" And I said, "That again is an unthinking response. You're reducing right away. Hundred million is everything. And if you want to know where they would go, I already painted the picture of a dearth of population in many parts of the country where we need them." And we easily get to 100 in the larger in in the second largest country in the world without blinking. But most importantly, whether it's 80 million, 60 million, or 120 million, when you're thinking at that scale, all of a sudden you realize that your assets need to be commensurate with both your territory, your population, and your ambition. And military all of a sudden goes up. So whereas we have, mm -hmm. I think, 60,000, 80,000 troops, depending on reserve counts depending on the day we might at 100 million have a, 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 if we're looking at uh, even Australia's Australia's larger ratio of, of defense spending to population for a smaller population uh, somewhere up in the area of 300,000 in the military and then you have a, a military that's one of the largest in Europe mm. which by the way is appropriate for our size and given our needs and given what's happening in the world so that's a different way of cutting it. Another way of cutting it, Spencer, is to say military is the flip side of diplomacy. And we imagine that one is obviously peaceful and the other one is 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 is, is not peaceful or one is one is technical, the other one is, is brutal. But really in strategy, you look at military and diplomacy as flip sides of the same coin. For instance, in in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, they go to war and then they go to the military, the diplomatic table to represent the balance of force mm -hmm. on the ground and back. It's not dissimilar for us. And if people think that we have enough military, let me talk about the dip diplomatic side because we actually need to increase both. Diplomacy in Canada. Let's look at our embassy coverage in the world. We think that we're great diplomats. Where do we have embassy coverage? In Africa, there are 54 countries. Canada has embassies in 21 of them. Hmm. 
21. Norway has more embassies than Canada in Norway, Norway population, four or five million. In the Middle East, something like 16 countries, Canada has embassies in nine of them. In the former Soviet space, we think we're experts on Ukraine. There are 15 post-Soviet countries, 15. We have embassies in six of them. Nothing in Belarus, nothing in Armenia, Azerbaijan, nothing in Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, all necessary for understanding the conflict as well. Uh, and so on. The same thing, I could go to parts of Asia as well, Southeast Asia, even in, in Latin America, we're underwhelming. And as a result, if we want to play at a level that's commensurate with, I think, our, our pressures this century and the ambition I'm talking about, high energy ambition, then we're gonna to have to up the, the, the diplomatic and the military footprint in tandem. And I would add a third one, intelligence. Intelligence is, is information and analytics. We have no human foreign intelligence capacity in Canada at all, independent. We're one of the only serious major countries in the world without such. Mm. We have very negligible analytics, very poor linguistic capacity. And, and and so on. As a result, we are beholden to the United States mainly for our information. And if I said they're unimpressive, they're particularly unimpressive analytically. That is, I don't I'm not impressed by their understanding or interpretation of specific events and trends in the world. And if we're term takers from them, that means we're getting secondary information from a second class intelligence power. And where are we? They're doing their interpretation for for us and we're not doing the thinking. So all of those things, that's a different way of cutting and making the case for increased defense expenditure. On the issue of education, you said, I think you feel that's the biggest issue, I guess, perhaps because of how it feeds into all the others with you know, business. You know, if you have a less educated population, you can suffer economically in many ways, healthcare, different issues. How do you think the case is made? Because there's a lot of with education, it tends to be a uh, very politicized, right? Because provinces say, well, we want to control our education system. They don't want the government, the federal government dictating to them. Do you think, are you wanting a more of a centralized system or do you think it's something that has to happen in each province individually? I had no view on this before the pandemic and I'm still not dogmatic on centralized versus decentralized. It is what it is. Section 93 in the Constitution Act 1867 explicitly gives legislative power um, exclusively to the provinces on education. So be it. We're actually the only country in the world, one of the only countries, including amongst the Federation, without a national minister of education. Just interesting fact. Mm. Zero. We don't think about it, and everyone outside of Canada is surprised. What do you mean you have? Who's responsible for education in Canada? The provinces. Fair enough. When you and I were, were growing up, one could, for all practical intents and purposes, go to a public school in any part of Canada and get a reasonable education. And as a result, it's a world-class public education system that yields very, very competent citizens. I'm not saying geniuses are excellent or exceptional quality. A system is judged by the regularity of the outcome. That's a system. It was deteriorating over time in different provinces, but by and large, 
there was great parity as between um, Charlottetown and Victoria, British Columbia, or as between uh, Richmond Hill, Ontario, and, and again, Churchill, Manitoba. Great parity. Even between poor and rich neighborhoods, by and large. And it could even be that an immigrant family brings their child without even speaking English or French, sends the child to school, not even knowing what the child is studying. And the child, after 12 years of education, becomes a doctor, a lawyer, or an officer in the military. That's a system. We collapse this system, in my view, in certain provinces led by Ontario criminally. I mean, these were outright policy crimes. I will explain. This is this feeds into my after pandemic thinking that's in articulated mm -hmm. in, in our plan as well. In March of 2020, uh, the world experienced its biggest simultaneous policy action in history, and that was the closure of schools around the world. This was improvised. There was no conspiracy behind it. There was general goodwill, but there was not much thinking. Schools were just closed physically while people figured out what to, what was happening with the pandemic. I mentioned India. In India, a brilliant student like, let's say, a Savita in Mumbai could have been a top physics student. She would school would close. She'd go back to her village. And if she's 12, 13, she'd be married off. She'd be married off by now. She never returned to school. Top student. India's got 200,000, 200 million of these third bucket kids who never returned to school. The same thing happened here. Our schools closed physically, and we imagined that kids went frictionlessly online. That was the imagination because we were online. Mm -hmm. So everyone else is like us. Those who closed the schools didn't realize what they were closing. They were closing life. Across Canada, a certain segment of the population had no access to internet at all. So if a student was closed if the physical school was closed, that student went for several months into a, 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 a setting or a home without internet access, and in many cases never returned to school again. If the child were online or was online, but in an abusive home, also that child, in many cases, never returned to school. If a child went online but had learning disabilities or had no English or French or the family didn't know how to negotiate the 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 apparatus, the 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 the, the device, also there was a risk of of, of ouster. We call this ouster. Mm -hmm. And finally, the most the most uh, I think dangerous category that was I think the most tragic, middle and high school kids who, as soon as they went online for a certain period, realized that school lost all meaning. I mean, literally lost all meaning, not just the quality. There were no walls. There was no community. There were no friends, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no sports, no mentorship. No, they're there. And the act of leaving school, even for a good student, was not was just a matter of turning off the Zoom call, literally. Mm. It was zero cost proposition. And so the longer they were online, the greater the tendency to, to be ousted with zero exit costs. And moreover, nobody would know that you left. 
and nobody, and you appreciate this in this teenage condition, nobody would go look for you. A teenager wants to be dragged back to school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you were in school and I was in school, Spencer, if someone wanted to, if Brian or Virginia wanted to leave school, they would make an announcement two months beforehand, say, I'm leaving school, they get stopped by the principal at the door, mm-hmm. boyfriend, girlfriend, and then there would be hugs that they would cry, and then they would, then someone would go to the parents at home and drag the child back, convince them, here, it was frictionless, you're out, and the system moved on. So in Ontario, with the longest school closures in all of North America, we have 100,000 plus third bucket kids. Third bucket meaning not in the first bucket, physical school, not in the second bucket, virtual school, in the third bucket, no school at all. Now, if I say that online, people say, ah, you're being ideological, everyone has a school. Or what about homeschooling? No, I'm talking about no school at all. I'm talking about the school of being in the Oliver Twist condition. (laughs) We must understand because as soon as we exit the pandemic in more difficult circumstances, these kids will die young. We can poo-poo it online, but no one will need them. No one's going to go to a child with a grade five, six education, even grade nine in a post-pandemic world, say, say we are hired, right? And given our mobilization record over the pandemic, no one's going to save this child. So we have a massive catastrophe on our hands because we have 200,000 of these kids across the country, including in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and the indigenous communities, very 50% some cases, fifth third bucket condition during the pandemic but this is also for this is for all description of students not just good and bad not just indigenous non-indigenous ethnic minority non-ethnic all there are all sorts of students there are also rich kid paradoxes and so we worked on this 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 condition because first of all i find it unacceptable morally that that we did this to the kid we did this because after the first closure, we continued to close. Even after early on, I think from September of 2020, I sounded the alarm, I said, do not close, we must not close. Their kids not coming back to school. We continued. And then in Ontario, it almost became a, a form of policy expression. We close schools for Ontario. We don't educate. Now they understand. So in the in the in the exit strategy, one of the cursed things is, is that at the end point is we must make it clear schools never close. Students law, schools never close except war. We're even working on an international treaty with the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids so that countries understand in the 21st century schools ought never to close because we understand what happens after death happens, not through COVID. Uh, so in the exit plan is a national search search and integration campaign, door to door across the country, find these kids, get them back. Uh, The other one, of course, is that everyone in the system, in the 5 million K to 12 across the country, they suffered huge learning losses. So that needs to be, that's not a question of just taking the mask off and no social distancing. These are all negative defensive things. That all must go. We, we, We say immediately off, fair enough. But we have so much energy to, to, to invest in catching up on the learning loss. Because, again, I'm a strategist. I say, look at the world that awaits. These kids must be even more prepared than they would have been in 2019 for tomorrow. We've collapsed their preparation. We've done them a grave disservice. Leave aside the third bucket kids. So on education, off to the races we go. 
even in Ontario where we collapsed learning over two, two and a half, three years, we have to have an extra year of, of school. So back to grade 13 here, hmm. whatever it takes. Um, in the business realm, we have an endpoint, which is to say all our business action must reconsolidate, reconstitute businesses that were just disintegrated for no reason. But the end point must be to say, Canada is a country in which you want to invest. We're not a country that on a dime is ready to close businesses without compensation, without warning, without appeal, without interest. So that must be the end spirit. So we have to think beyond the tactical. In all cases in the exit plan, we have a strategic telos, an end point. In the health sector, both COVID, non-COVID, surge capacity, huge surge capacity. Right, we have to build that in for all emergencies, not just COVID. There'll be other pandemics and other emergencies down the way, including wars and, and natural disasters. We can't be uh, so tight uh, all the time, and that, that requires work and mobilization. On the social fabric, I myself have underestimated the extent to which some people, for a variety of reasons, are scared still. They're scared, and that's why they're not in the streets. And so we have to unwind that fear because the exit requires the physical. Part of the working hypothesis of the exit plan is that the kids will help us. So the kids go first. The kids must be out singing, playing in uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in, in Saskatoon, in, in, in Calgary, in Toronto, in, in, in Laval, tournaments, festivals. We're having a national walk for Canada's youth on April 3rd, I'd like to announce. I want tens of thousands of kids, university level, high school, elementary, in the street walking for their own future because they'll show us through the sounds that we all remember what what living elegantly is like and they'll help us very much like some of the international phenomena i mentioned reassert the physical exit the pandemic which is objectively endemic now on a systems understanding over mm -hmm. but still still capturing us virtually yeah, on the question of you know, the kids, I mean, that's going to be a serious education or a serious uh, economic problem as well. Do you think, you know, getting to the fear aspect, one thing I found so strange was this seems like the first time in a long time that I can remember, and certainly in recent history, where we almost decided we were going to sacrifice the needs of the youngest in the country to the needs of older people. And it's almost always been reversed. You know, the Titanic, everyone knows, you know, women and children first, right? But the idea throughout history has been the last group of people you sacrifice is young people. You know, you everyone else sacrifices to protect young people. What do you think led to almost the complete reversal of what seemed to be pretty ironclad values that we had? I don't know for certain. I'm deeply ashamed of that aspect of our last two years. It, it, it is deep source of national, of personal shame as a citizen. And it ought to be a never again moment for Canada. I mean, it was total shame, national shame, what we did to the children. Hence my urgency. Hence my urgency over the last one and a half year when I was myself seized of this. The strategist in me says the world is collapsing. Canada is in a darker place. The young people need to be overprepared. That's the strategist. So from September, August, September 2020, I said, stop talking about safe schools, talk, excellence in schools, excellence, excellence, because what's required tomorrow 
will only favor the very educated countries. Mm. So that everyone understands not excellence as a fetish or a personal preference. It's because the, the leading countries of the world, those that have survived and done well in difficult circumstances are the ones that have had high education. Full stop, full stop, right? And Canada has always been ready for that. And we collapsed one of our great assets, which is a highly educated, in a general sense, population. Now we have a highly uneducated population coming. Uneducated. Wow. That's our tomorrow. So we have a negative year, less than a year, not even a year. We're way behind to catch up. So high energy at the front. Not, oh, everyone, the kids will be okay. The kids will be okay until they're not okay. And then they're out the door and they're dead at 35 because we did this to them. So I'm not sure what led to it. My working presumption is that it was a moment of deep unthinking in Canada. We didn't realize what we were doing. And in the online world, we were captured by slogans fed to us by algorithms on social media that are not created by Canada. It's another problem. We don't create any of the social media on which we operate, but we consume the vocabulary that is not necessarily representative of our own realities and our interests. And we collapsed the childhood condition in the country in which it was once wonderful to be a child. Who would want to be a child in Canada? Everybody wants to be a child. But in several provinces, multiple provinces and territories in the country, God forbid you should be a child here during the pandemic. It was misery. It was misery expressed as policy, and sometimes proudly so. So it was a moral shame, but a strategic failure. So how do we reverse that? We don't sentimentalize or apologize. We correct. I'm only for correction. And so the correction must be hyper-energetic. We have no time to waste. This is why I have called for, for federal leadership, because the provinces are the ones that oversaw the collapse in many cases, not in all cases. There were some heroic exceptions. The federal intervention must be on a strategic understanding, not a one of constitutional jurisdiction. Obviously, I'm not asking for the federal government to take take over education in any respect. What I'm saying is that I might have to plug in my uh, my my power if I cut out just mm -hmm. by the way. Um, what I'm saying is that that the federal government must see the value chain. Whom are we producing for tomorrow to populate the professions, the economic institutions, the social institutions? What is our talent pool for our judges, our civil service, our cabinet, our prime minister, our police forces, our army? What is the talent pool? Talent pool stinks, stinks because we've collapsed education. It stinks on our own account, our own watch. So we must intervene to fix the, the this 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 human capital problem capital not in an economic sense the talent problem the the, the education problem otherwise we're not going to be dealing with with a strong talent pool and given the needs of tomorrow this is catastrophic we just won't have the people that we need for our challenges and so historically and strategically that portends very dark periods for Canada, especially when our kids meet the kids of countries that have continued to educate. Mm -hmm. 
So many countries look at us like we're from Mars. What do you mean you have 200,000 third bucket kids? We got zero. What do you mean you have zero? How did that happen? Well, we didn't stop thinking during the pandemic. We didn't certainly didn't collapse our education function. And so our kids are prepared. And so those kids and good on the good on, good on the countries that prepared them and shame on us. Those kids will meet our kids and they will eat them alive. As they intended to do. And it's our fault. So I'm for that correction. I see that dynamic, including at the, the border countries that we that, that I mentioned, some of them very, very difficult countries indeed. But from a moral perspective, of course, I. I often think I have three children myself. I deal with with, with youth sport. I'm a teacher, professor many years, and, and I think about the youth all the time. It's a beautiful period of my own life. And so to me, it's morally unacceptable. And as an adult, it's a duty. It's a duty, sacred duty to prepare your kids and, and the young. Right? And it's obviously cowardly or just plain stupid or degenerate to, to, to not prepare them and then say, off you go. Feed them to the wolves. Sorry, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was either. I didn't. I didn't realize what was happening. That's yeah, it was amazing to see people saying things like, "Oh, you know, kids are resilient." It's like, well, you know, who's supposed to be more resilient than children? That would be adults. You're supposed to develop that over time, not put all the pressure of society on you know, children. Right. And say, "Oh, you guys are going to be fine. Just deal with it." That's right. I think the children are resilient. Like many things, is a slogan that was somehow fed into the social media and became part of our discourse. One of the things uh, is not in the exit strategy, but, but I, I've written about, I got a new book out called Canada Must Think for Itself, 10 Theses on, for, for Canada's Survival and Success in the 21st Century. One of the, the problems is social media. I mean, social media is an invention of American brilliance. Brilliant. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, brilliant. We didn't invent it. We use it. Now, the problem is, of course, we are impressed by Twitter accounts and, and, and retweets and trending, all that stuff. But in a policy sense, it becomes a nonsense because we must understand that the terms of the use are controlled by the designer, the algorithms as well. And the designers are all in California. Congratulations to them. I applaud them, but I'm very aware of our vassalized circumstances. We use their algorithm to describe our own reality. And if their algorithm all of a sudden says we're, we're promoting this direction, that direction, this product, this vocabulary, then we're in trouble if it's not representative of our own reality. And so a, a properly thinking Canada in our circumstances will really need to understand that we need to control our information space, not as a censorship project, not as a anti-free speech. That's that's not what I'm talking about at all. To understand that we want to set the term, we we need to invent our own social media or the next generation communication. Our, our media institutions need to be you know, world-class, at scale, properly eclectic, whatever that looks like. But it needs to be controlled by us in a way that allows us to feed to our decision makers information about our own realities. Otherwise, we're going to say, while our own kids are collapsing, the kids are resilient. You know, or we'll say, or our huge swaths of industry will 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 disintegrate and we'll start a media campaign. Say, oh, that industry was 
was bad to begin with. These are just slogans that that can be proliferated on social media that we don't control for for a variety of reasons. We can go to specific examples one day, but but I'm hyper conscious of that. I'm hyper conscious of that, as are other thinking societies and countries. They understand it's fun to use Twitter and Facebook, but we have to be careful because if the prime minister is commuting, communicating with his population, our prime minister on Twitter, and Twitter could be shut off by a clerk in California, you know, that really means that we don't have a proper interface between the prime minister and the population. And the population in turn can't feed back to the prime minister its own stories because it has to do it on terms acceptable to the same clerk that could shut the prime minister off. That's a big problem. So yeah, one issue I wanted to discuss is uh, competition, or I guess you could say the lack thereof. I remember, forget exactly what website it was, but I was reading a report on uh, industry concentration, like what percentage of an industry is concentrated in just a few companies. And Canada and China were right at the top of the list. We have a tremendous concentration of industries here. And there seems to be this this attitude where the government would almost like to continue giving money to already big companies as opposed to kind of creating a playing field where people can, you know, entrepreneurs can build small companies into big companies. What do you think feeds into that kind of lack of competition in the country? And how do you think we could work our way out of that? It's a deep question. Uh, a few sociological points. One goes back to the 150 years of great stability that, that I mentioned that we've really not had what in German is called existence angst. We've not had to fear for our, our security, our life, the country, our tomorrow. Tomorrow is like today. If tomorrow is like today, there's no rush. On that basic sociological point, if you look at a number of countries, by the way, including the Chinese, I would differ a little bit on the Chinese. I, I, I lived in Singapore for a while, studied that that part of the worked in, as a professor in, in, in the Lee Kuan Yew school there. Mm -hmm. So I studied that deeply. And. The Chinese like the Israelis, like the Persians. The Russians, to some extent. The Koreans. A number of other nations, Indians. Busybodies, busybodies. These are old civilizations that are in a rush, that have collapsed many times over, and that realize the, the fleeting nature of both their circumstances and their country. We're comfortable. Mm -hmm. We're comfortable. Not only are we comfortable, the political class and, and the narratives we tell ourselves are about consolidating the comfortable con condition. We're comfortable. Isn't it good to be comfortable? But entrepreneurship, risk taking, and working at a scale that we'll get to require this existence angst. The Singaporeans and the Malaysians called kiasu kiasi, the idea that disorder awaits around the bend, right? Just like the, pand the pandemic hits, all of a sudden things collapse. Ukraine and Russia have a good day and all of a sudden there's an invasion, the world is upside down. They have a felt appreciation of that, we until 2020, March 2020, imagine that again, we had to invent our problems. Tomorrow's like today, so there's no rush. This also goes on the on the back of a deeply colonial culture. We are still a colonial culture in many ways. 
highly educated, highly dignified, and rightly proud of our history, a very interesting complex history, not boring at all, especially constitutional history, political history, but we never revolted. So from the British mothership, we went to the American mothership, <laughs> psychologically especially, but the Americans are busybodies. But the Americans are in that class of people that I say are their busybodies. And even during the pandemic in this education work, for instance, on this worldwide commission I had, the Americans have significant representation. They've got about 10 people, big country. Every time I speak to them, bolt of energy. Like I, even in their difficulty, in their political chaos, in their third bucket chaos, they're in the same pandemic we're in. Bolt of energy. Let's go. Let's do it. Off to the races. And we were in a stupor. Sometimes I would count on them for the bolt of energy because I, I would speak with a Canadian colleague and I'd be in the in the zombified stupor <laughs> and I speak to the American colleague and I, I tell my wife, I said, Scott, I spoke with a Floridian, I spoke with a with a Virginia colleague. I'm energized, I'm ready to I'm taking on the world, and we need that in our country. Those are preconditions for mass entrepreneurship. Structural preconditions now. Population. You're in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. We spoke about the Arctic, but even in Ontario and in, and in, and in Quebec, we do not have enough people for our territory, for proper internal markets, internal markets of financing, internal markets of consumption, competition, at scale public goods like infrastructure and 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 financing markets and think tanks even even government money that comes with basic demography or the sheer pooling of democracy like countries like singapore and israel they do it very very centralized and psh, with huge energy at the at the front end like israel's got their foundations they've got their military Right, uh, Singapore not dissimilar, whereas China, India, and the United States just basic huge demography. There's a Boston Consulting Group report, I think, just when the pandemic hit, about the 50 biggest country uh, companies in the world, and or the 50 most innovative, not even biggest, and there wasn't a single Canadian one there. And the same thing would apply on scale. Almost all of the innovative companies were in countries that were bigger than us. With, again, the exception of, uh, of an Israel and Netherlands here and there, maybe a Sweden. Talking about South Korea, Japan, United States, China. And so we cannot, although it sounds 19th century, we cannot underestimate demographic footprint. We just need more people. We talk about the composition, distribution of the population. We need more people. That's why I said 100 million as a basic energy prospect for the country. And that will create some of the competition you talk about, competition for talent, competition of building. With respect to this, the, the government interface with the private sector, it is extremely naive. Um, it is not meant for results. It's meant to be procedurally pure and frugal at the front end. That is the money that our provinces and, and federal government give to business, even at the front end, 
is procedurally pure, almost naively so sometimes, and insufficient to do anything. Whereas in other cases, in, in countries like the United States, certainly Israel, certainly China, they're less procedurally pure at the front end and they're ready to lose money at the front end. They place five bets and they imagine that they'll have one Google. Hmm. Right, and that Google will change the world and no one will remember the four. Whereas we do not enough for half a Google, it fails and we sentimentalize. So there are many, many dimensions to that. Part of it starts with, with placing those bets. Part of it stands, starts with the talent. I mean, really bringing to Canada. This is also in my, my thinking outside of this exit plan. The best and brightest, recruiting them very, very aggressively all the time, making bespoke packages, send them to the Arctic, send them to the West. Uh, by the way, in, in the Arctic proposition, the West really becomes the center, one of the centers of, of Canada psychologically and physically. But if you bring certain types of people into the, even into our own Arctic, they will, they will, they will make flower uh, businesses within five years that we in Canada couldn't have have created or fifty, just through their own industry. And we need, just need to look at some of the conflict areas in the world as well. And there's there's also there's also opportunity there for Canada, in spite of the tragedy, to 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 help people and bring talent here. Yeah, on the issue of you know a hundred million Canadians or somewhere around that number, how do you kind of you know consider the uh, well, immigration is obviously a very political issue. You know, I see a lot of people, and sometimes even said myself, it seems like the government's focus is just to bring in more and more people every year, not really worry about cohesiveness, uh, not really worry about, for example, the impact on the housing market, right? We have the housing price issue. And then also, of course, the fact that many people, they kind of feel that, what about making life affordable for young people here, right? Because it's tougher for people to start families off and if they can't afford a house and get things going. So how would you balance those concerns? I guess part of it is you'd be sending more people to parts of the country that are very sparsely populated, so that doesn't have the same housing concern. But how do you kind of manage the, the idea that you can tell people, okay, you're going to spend some time here, but you can't order people to stay in a region forever once they come to the country? I guess there has to be incentives to live in the Arctic and then build it up, which for a lot of people would still be a kind of a, a proposition they wouldn't really consider or, or enjoy. Um, never underestimate the attractiveness of, of the North for people who really want to come to Canada, given the circumstances in the world mm -hmm. and the opportunity that they may see that we don't see. So that's the first thing. But I'm not just the Arctic, the country, the Atlantic Canada needs huge numbers of people. They're always in need. They've done a little bit better at the margins during the pandemic. Uh, the Prairie provinces need um, northern Ontario needs, northern Quebec and even some of the big cities that can reach higher scale. So a couple of paradoxes. First of all, I'm very sensitive to cohesion. Um, not always in the, in the way that people would imagine, but that means we need to be very bespoke. We always need to be thinking. It's, it, it cannot just be anybody, anytime, from anywhere, and, and Canada can absorb them all. That's a slogan. If that can be proved in the detailed choreography, then I can, I can stand to be convinced. But I do not believe it happens on its own. It needs to be carefully choreographed as it is in a lot of countries. And the pandemic has shown that we need to choreograph and think through 
beyond the, 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 the slogan. So I'm very mindful of majority minority dynamics. The uh, where that really becomes acute actually is in the Quebec question. People don't realize that the the most sensitive fault line in the Federation vis-a-vis -vis immigration is in Quebec because de facto or even almost in a constitutional way, we have an understanding with Quebec that they will always maintain their proportion of the population, about 20%. That's almost constitutionalized in the 1990 Canada-Quebec Immigration Agreement. So that means if we go to 100 million, Quebec needs to go to 20 million. Very well, Quebec can go to 20 million, no problem. But we need to be mindful of that. Second point is that we'll be actively distributing the population. So people won't go wherever they want. And there also should be internal migration. And I have ideas for how that would become much more eclectic. You, you grew up in Toronto and you should imagine yourself easily working in New Brunswick or Manitoba or, or the North and the reverse. And in Quebec and English and French doesn't matter. Another point, paradoxical point. I think we naively imagine that we will only bring people in to Canada if there are jobs available. That to me is a slogan, because as I mentioned, there are certain types of people that will come and make 100 jobs as soon as they arrive. And we've had those throughout history. And we need to find them. And we, I'm, I put an emphasis on those types of people. They're, 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 they're multipliers for our society. So they're not coming to take a discrete job or to take a job away from a Canadian. They're coming to make a thousand new jobs within two years for all Canadians and to create companies and institutions that are necessary for a country to thrive. So it's not one for one. In some cases, it's a one to create 20. Example, I was speaking about the Arctic in Israel of all places. They, they're, they had a conference on, on global conflicts and I started bringing up the Arctic. And an Israeli comes up to me and started the most interesting line of questioning on the Arctic I've ever gotten. And I said, I couldn't have gotten that question in 10 years in Canada in the Arctic. Nobody is that interested. Nobody knows it. Hmm. Nobody's curious. What it told me is that if you bring certain types of people, and I'm not wed to a certain country or, 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 or it's not an ethnicity, it's, it's a way of thinking. They will see things we don't see. And that's always been the story of Canada. You know, an entrepreneur comes to the West Coast and uh, or, or a farmer comes to 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 the fields of of, of Manitoba or Saskatchewan and 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 one a person from from country A may see may see uh, Philistine condition. Another one sees sees wheat that can feed the, the entire continent and another person comes to to the, the north of of of, uh, uh, of Ontario and, and sees rock, and another one sees sees a mining industry that that will that will sustain an entire country for generations, and so on. And in the Arctic, I see, for instance, the future of the world, and Canada at the center of it. It's a building proposition, and it requires people at the front end actually, in order to create those multipliers. So the working proposition in 100 million is that if we get the right people. There'll be multipliers through jobs and housing will, uh, like with other goods, uh, in some cases will become more expensive in, in places that are coveted. But in other cases, the economies and competition will become 
more affordable, more attainable. The same thing with transportation costs. We don't have, I mean, our internal transportation arteries in Canada are 19th century for all practical intents and purposes, right? I have uh, in this new book uh, uh, a table where I talk about the high-speed rail mileage uh, across the 20 leading countries of the world with high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, Canada has how much high-speed rail? We have zero high-speed rail. Zero. We're still thinking in the bigger countries, uh, we're in the biggest cities about a subway stop between two streets several kilometers apart as a major achievement over the course of a decade right i mean it, in, if, if we had uh if we had at scale chinese or turkish or russian or european or italian thinking we would have connected this country long ago through high-speed rail and now the next generation the japanese built their high-speed rail in the 1960s right and we we still haven't even put any any nail in, in 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 the ground no 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 tracks and so on in the entire north there's no connection east west between the three territories they're like separate principalities and very limited connection north south yeah that's a that's a good point i noticed when you look at a map of canada and transportation networks say you just you took the the border between canada and the united states out of it it really just looks much more like these are connected regions going, you know, north south, right? You know, BC is much more connected, obviously, to Washington and Oregon, California, and Alberta, Montana, Manitoba, North Dakota, and Minnesota. And there's just only a few little lines across Canada, just in a few small areas. And so that's, I think, also, it's not just an economic problem, but also a psychological problem. I know there was a poll from a few years ago, and they asked people, think in BC, do you feel you have more in common with people who live in Washington state or with people who live in Alberta? And pretty clear majority said they felt they had more in common with people in Washington state. So we almost have these kind of regional identities that don't match up with national identity. It's very true. It's very true. Um, one of the, of course, the, the beauties of Canada is the regionality. And until the pandemic struck, I could easily go from region to region and I still feel Canadian. And I would be awestruck at the fact that this is one country, though I mentioned the scale. We're, we're three empires within one. Canada is really a continent-sized country and empire uh, across the regions. Now, it's not an obvious country because of the regional distinctions you rightly describe. BC could easily be assimilated into, into the Pacific Northwest, and Toronto fits in comfortably with, with, with Boston and, and, and New England, and so on. But we are a country. Nobody should wish it away. It would take a millennium to build another country like Canada. It's been highly prosperous and successful and peaceable. Until the pandemic, the citizens were happy. How was the country created? The country was created as a much smaller geographic proposition in 1867, four provinces, still continent-sized, in conspicuous opposition to the American project. That's in the Constitution. We are created as a, a, a counter thesis explicitly to the American project. The Americans had a civil war, and we said the response to the civil war is to federate and give the illusion of the ability to defend ourselves in case the Americans decide to annex. 
In order to continue that illusion, we built a railway east to west. It's a major, major infrastructure project that we've not been able to repeat since. That railway project, you talk about again, planting the seeds for employment before the employment comes, that was very much it. The psychology was overcome by steel. And that, that if anything, shows that, that, that you build and they will come, right? Or you set the terms and they will come and then new term setters will come rather than wait for, well, John A. McDonald would wait till till job, there was enough job demand in, in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Rupert's Land and, and in British Columbia um, before he would build a railroad. He was thinking the opposite. He was thinking about protecting the country. It was strategic interest. Now, what's interesting is this. We've got modern myths about this. The modern myth is that people live in Winnipeg and Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal because it's warm, right? Because by contrast, Whitehorse and Nuvik are cold, but Ottawa and Winnipeg are somehow warm. This is a modern mythology. The historical reason is that the forts were built along the southern border connected by the railway to build to move troops across the country for defense against our original enemy. The genetic enemy of Canada was the United States. That was the that's at Genesis. It's a fact. Fortunately, we became friends and allies. We've got a modern mythology that says we're we're best friends and that's why we're at the south. Now, if we built the, the country east to west against the natural psychology, because of strategic reasons, it means that the North and the West, for the strategic reasons I suggested, will be built up in the coming decades or must be built up, even though there's not an obvious psychological demand right now. That is, the Arctic is opening up. It's the size of the European Union. We've got 115,000. The Russians are putatively hostile, potentially hostile, maybe hostile, and they've got huge assets there. How to defend? We got to go up like we did across east to west we got to go up so there's got to be a presence there military infrastructural business psychological institutional educational and so on same thing on the china side these are this is what i call the rc axis or the mm -hmm. cr axis russia and china at our borders right we need to build up assets and that itself will create some of the demand for population and economic activity and, and, and social and psychological energy that is not obvious today when we sit in southern cities. And maybe one day is when, when we're taking comfortable flights again from, from Hay River or, or Dawson City, Yukon to Shenzhen or to, to, to Singapore or to St. Petersburg or to Oslo from through the north comfortably with large populations there, good culture and restaurants and infrastructure, then we'll say it's always been thus because it's pretty warm up here. It's pretty warm, right? So let us get to that point. But but I also think that that anticipation, that vision, that anticipation of what's, what may be around the bend for Canada is exciting for these young people who are in trouble. They will begin to dream again about Canada, whereas what do they have to what have we told them there is to look forward to? Well, they look forward to taking off their mask, right? That's not enough of a dream for a young person. And it wasn't enough to hold me down when I was young, but something like 
building up the north, not in the way we typically see as this frozen ice ball, but really as the center of the world between continental North America, Northeast and Southeast Asia, former Soviet space and Northern Europe, we're at the center, right? We are the axis, we're the nucleus. That's really exciting and that's big. That's a lot of work and that's that starts to get some of the national energies flowing. Yeah, it sounds like there's almost a template, right? The way you described how the, the West was built up. You can do something similar in the North where right? you start building transportation networks. That brings jobs up there. You start building military bases, then you're going to have some people who just want to live around the military base and then slowly but surely you start to, to build up presence there. Exactly. Of course, that requires yeah. a lot of investment, so that'll be a big political sales job for sure. It will require investment, and this is why I say Canadian frugality need not apply. It's uh, it's not a bookkeeping operation as a slogan. There's bookkeeping involved, mm -hmm. but we have to supply it properly. So the liquidity needs to be there commensurate with the scale required. Otherwise, we will die. Strategically, we will die as a country. We will get crushed. Those forces that I mentioned, the ACRE, America, China, Russia, Europe, they can crush us or pull us apart, including, by the way, our American neighbors, first and foremost, can, can crush us uh, uh, with the right president in an instant. And then we won't realize that we had a country. It happens very fast, right? But smart countries don't allow themselves to fail more than once as we did with the pandemic. Going forward, what do you see for um, kind of political debate in the country around some of these issues? You know, I think there's going to be a conservative leadership race. So obviously, there's going to be a lot of internal bickering in that party. Uh, although I do see some of them. I think uh, Pierre Polyev has been talking about uh, building up the military and confronting Russia energy. Uh, so, so some are starting to talk about it, but we're still kind of stuck in a very, I don't know if you'd say parochial political debate here. How do you think Canadians, you know, who listen to this talk and want to see more of an in-depth discussion can kind of influence that in the political scene? It's a great question. I still fear that our policy responses and our political, even vocabulary, leave aside political imagination, are stuck in 2019. We have not realized the catastrophes at our feet. That's all parties, all governments, all level governments, all seniors, opinion leaders, decision makers. And that's a problem. We do not realize what's happened. And I actually think we, we weren't completely aware in 2019, but the world was not as wicked. And so there we could afford to imagine that tomorrow's like today. We had to make up problems in, in Canada. The, the going approach to policy making when I was in government that has remained the case today is I got a good idea. Oh, who's got a good idea? I got a good idea. No, that's not how a serious country works. And we can't do that anymore. So we don't need I got a good idea. That might be good for a business, a mom and pop shop, right? For a country. We need to understand our circumstances. First of all, our domestic circumstances, the eight crises I talk about, we talk about in the National Exit Committee. We need to understand that cold. We need a felt appreciation. Felt appreciation, by the way, means not just intellectual, I get it. It means we have to have a felt 
appreciation of the consequences of failure. Failure means national death. I mean the collapse of Canada. No, Irvin, it can't happen. Canada will never collapse. That's a slogan. Reality is countries collapse. We see it at our feet in other theaters, and we see it in history. If I say that the iron law of history is 60 years, if we're at 150 plus, it means we're plus pressing our luck. It means every additional year beyond 60, we have to work for it. And now we have to work. So I do not, and then outside of our, we got, we have a two to one. If you do a, a, a ledger of our enemies to, to friends, enemies to allies in the world, it's a two to one ratio in our disfavor. Demographically, we actually have two enemies to every one in the human population. We can go through that another time, but we're not as liked as we think. We have frontal enemies, right? And they will not hesitate to crush us. Those things combined, the external picture, the domestic picture, suggests that we must change the vocabulary to 2022. And the political imagination, both in, 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 in all three, four parties in parliament, the political level, I still see us talking as if we didn't lose tens of thousands of businesses over the last two years, as if we're preparing the same educated population tomorrow as we always have, that we have a national unity that is sustainable and vital, that we're internationally on safe ground because we're likable or something like that. <laughs> These are all slogans. So we haven't torqued the vocabulary and the political imagination therefore is not is not there. It's not reflecting the appropriate level, both of, of, of ambition and seriousness. My working theory, of course, is that if we get through these wicked circumstances, we could be a, a major country indeed. Well, on the other hand, it's altogether possible we're not allowed around in 10 or 15 years time. Very possible. Or that we're, we're a miserable place to live. Now, I fight against the latter two scenarios. I'm for the former, the first one, but that's huge work. I do not see the work being invested. I see a lot of tweeting. I see decision makers, the highest level thinking that a clever tweet is, is, is a day's achievement in public policy, but literally. And they are seen as such from the outside too. And I certainly see it as such from the inside. So I, I do worry gravely. Uh, on the conservative side, I hope the competition will will yield that seriousness. On the liberal side, I fear that the prime minister is out of ideas, and that the civil service does in Ottawa because it's not left. It's literally not left Ottawa in two years. Does not understand fundamentally what's happened in the country. They fundamentally do not understand. They've created an ideology a storyline that they're telling themselves about their own hard work over the last two years, their own virtue, their own maybe sagacity, their own can, their own expertise. But as soon as it hits the coalface of realities in, in other parts of the country, and the country's vast, we have a big problem. We have a big problem. And I think in the West, it's, it's acutely pro a problem, but there are four national unity problems and there are we talk about them in, in the in the exit plan as well. We have the Western question. We have the Quebec question. 
we have the indigenous question, and we have the basic question of borders between countries that weren't there before, not just physical borders in some cases, regulatory borders that make it very difficult on health regulation, other regulations now to do business and travel across the country, and psychological borders. What was a New Brunswicker was someone who could all of a sudden close borders on the rest of the country in the past. Never happened. Never happened. Right. I'm for expunging all those provincial memory uh, memories of, of, of erecting borders and that we are, as we were intended to be, a fluid federation. Whereas I can go to Manitoba on a given day and within the same day take a flight to, to Halifax and be a happy Canadian. And But that takes work product of huge carelessness, policy carelessness, to have erected it without a, an idea that you would have to un, unwind it shortly thereafter, right? Now we understand how, how, how hard it was to have created Canada as a fluid, reasonably cohesive federation at this scale um, at the start. What do you think, you know, someone like myself, you know, political commentators, you know, people with audiences, that are you know focused on politics. What do you think we can perhaps do better to communicate the depth of some of these issues? Because I'd say even for myself, I, I often focus on kind of the surface day-to-day -day political battles and not necessarily the long-term issues. So what do you think could be done there? It's a fundamental question. Um, I believe in in both missions. One has to speak as Einstein would say, uh, as plainly as possible, but not more plainly than necessary, something like that. So we need to communicate important issues succinctly, but never glibly or incuriously. Twitter, and I'm not big on Twitter. I, I, I developed an accidental following because people always says, follow, follow this guy. And I, I'm hesitant because. Yeah, I'll probably tell like people to follow you as well. Talk. So you're welcome I'm legato, that. <laughs> I'm legato, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm legato. I, I'm a strategist. I take these issues extremely seriously. And I'm skeptical of immediate applause for things that require a lot of thought that are not easy to communicate and people can't understand right away. And people are applauding on segments of thought. So there's room for that, for communicating. But as a platform for argument, it's extremely episodic and partial. And it can so be good for sharing links to long form content, though. I mean, you could get more people long -form to see. Content, but, but I actually think uh, one of the things missing uh, in the in the Twitter space that was our undoing during the pandemic is that it is extremely episodic, right? It's episodic and therefore it lends itself to COVID case counts. We could do these mm, for a yeah. hundred years. And then how do you communicate systems? Well, you can only communicate the systems one system at a time or one word at a time. And how do you get that? And the problem is as soon as the decision makers themselves are, and literally they are, become captive to Twitter, they themselves lose sight of the physical reality and the systems they govern. I actually think that the prime minister, having been 
holed up for two years in a Zoom room, literally, but for a short election period, never really saw the country, never had a felt appreciation, became radicalized by his own Twitter feed. I literally think that happened. Yeah, I've seen people say something similar to about, uh, obviously, to a different extent of Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, he spent two, even look at him sitting at a table and he's got all of his advisors super far away from him. He's been isolated, you know, physically and psychologically. And he's kind of just been sitting there reading over maps and history books and think, oh, I'm going to take everything back now. It's messed up a lot of people mentally. uh, He's had two years to think about it, but he's been thinking about it for uh, a while. That has a prehistory, I think, that goes back to 2014 in the Russian case. But it is a true that um, in the Russian case, it w- he would have been radicalized by his own television. Mm. And <laughs> television is more important than Twitter in, in, in the Russian-Ukrainian space. They like TV. And here we like social media. And as a result, they would say in some cases um, that Putin was radicalized by watching the, the TV propaganda that he himself let, let loose. So good was the propaganda. Mm-hmm. But we have the same problem. That is, we were staring at American-run Twitter feeds. I mean, literally, they're American-run. Mm-hmm. Not by conspiracy, they're just... America is the majority Twitter, Twitter base, and they run the algorithms. I know for a fact that in late 2020, early 2021, because I was working with some senior social media officials in Canada on this third bucket kit issue. And I said to them, we need your help to find these third bucket kids and to bring general awareness to this problem because it's a physical problem and we have no time to lose. And at the last minute, they pulled out and said, Irvin, we want to do this, but we've been called to do vaccines. And now I realize what happened is that through panic and through both the idea of some missionary idea of saving the world and maybe some 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 pecuniary interest as well vaccination became the dominant message on social media in early from early 2021 uh and i have no ideology on 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 the vaccination debate i'm just talking about the phenomenon of of why we only started talking about vaccination only pfizer or moderna whether you were good or bad and whether you mandate or not because the social media space became flooded with this mission was vaccinate the population as soon as possible to save the world and in canada it created a social catastrophe because although vaccination rates went up it was the only thing we talked about and we forgot about all of the other systems of society so opening a business or closing a business was a function of vaccination language same thing with schools, same thing with national unity, mm-hmm. same thing with institutions. And it created a radicalization loop as well because everything was in vaccination terms. Now, as a result, I'm left with conclusion that if the Russians would say, uh, he who controls television not only controls what the people will think, but controls what they will say, like they feed the vocabulary. It is true in our space that he or she who controls social media, that is the algorithm makers in California, will tell us how what we say because they feed us the vocabulary. So we talked about, we talked about the kids are resilient or 
Stay uh, home, save lives. Stay at home, save lives, or, you know, the the unvaccinated. The mm. unvaccinated. Anti-vaxxers. Where did that come from? The vaccine, the unvaccinated. I mean, by the way, I have no, again, no ideology one way or another. It's not, it's, I'm just sociologically observant. The unvaccinated is something that's fed into uh, the social media space and bombarded. And all of a sudden people say, I'm the vaccinated or I'm the unvaccinated. And it's only through that campaign that we, that could have come to, to dominate our, our social condition. Otherwise in 2019 speak, it would be a nonsense because Canadians weren't as glued to social media space. We weren't quarantining. And the social media weren't as uniform in their in, in, in their vocabulary for a purpose. Yeah, it was a so that's, combination that's, of that's, 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 a, that's a problem because we have to unwind that and, and come to the physical and, and understand our Canadian circumstance, vaccinated or unvaccinated, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had a combination of people being physically, you know, atomized, right? Phys- just physically separate from each other which is already bad enough uh, in the normal world. And then, as you say, being fed algorithms that often seem designed to divide people and get people upset. And it just, it's been a feedback loop. And so uh, how do you think, you know, one, one question I was thinking of earlier is for a long time, let's say the past, at least year, year and a half, it seems like our country has basically been governed by, I guess you could say pandering or listening to whatever word you want to use, but pandering to those who are most afraid policies basically have been set by those who are the most afraid and how do you think we get past that going forward because my concern is and you discussed before you're you're not so sure we'll handle the next uh, you know crisis any better if that's kind of what we've learned you could say from this is that okay we do whatever is necessary to assuage the fears of those who are the scared scared the most you know how do we avoid that happening next time because we'll just end up in the same situation possibly very soon. Uh, I I fear tremendously that we have set uh, a deep psychological precedent for future emergency behavior in the context of even graver emergencies. Most emergencies will be far graver. And it's totally inappropriate behavior because it was unthinking, wasn't systematic, and it collapsed many of our systems. Huge own goal, as we would say in hockey or or or, or, or soccer, my, my sport. We scored on ourselves many times over. I mean, what kind? What country interested in its future collapses its education sector? That's that's crazy. What country interested in in a vital economy says we're going to collapse tens of thousands of businesses in an instant? But we'll sloganeer that. Let's say Ontario is open for business, mm-hmm. or the economy is building back. Building back on what? <laughs> Just destroy the economy. You can only build. Why would people build after what you did? The memory is still there. The and in, by the way, we and we continue to say, but res, but those restrictions and that behavior can be brought back at any moment if case counts go up or something like that. So it's there, mm-hmm. and 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 so on. The sh- the answer is the only answer is leadership and a quality of leadership a class of leaders who in the next pandemic or war or emergency say we got it everyone calm and that by the way would have been fine at the start in canada if we understood after a few months of of watching the profile of the pandemic if we understood 
this ain't that much. We're good to go. We're good to go. And we see how some more intelligent countries are, are handling it. We'll have we'll have we'll have surges here and there, and we're going to obviously protect the aged as we always must. Right. We're going to surge on the comorbid outreach to the population. Leadership. Leadership. Countries survive. Difficult periods through heroic leadership or competent leadership, and they collapse through terrible leadership. Right. And we can go through catalogs of countries that have have done one or the other. Right. Um, the other thing I would say, just an interesting counterintuitive point. When we did a lockdown, and if it's an even more serious pandemic, there will definitely be periods in the future where if it's a wartime situation or a really serious pandemic that is killing people left, right and center, and we have to shut society down, although we keep the schools open, I've always said, for the reasons I articulated maximally, and business too, as much as possible. One thing that's counterintuitive that I realize is when government shuts a society down, government cannot pretend to be an average citizen. The premier cannot just say, or the prime minister cannot just say, I'm one of you, mm. or go into quarantine and be the Wizard of Oz and say, you see, I'm I'm being an exemplar of what proper quarantine behavior is. I'm socially distancing. I want to announce on Twitter I got COVID. I'm socially distancing. I'm wearing a mask. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be called out on Twitter. Nay, the strategic response is that you've de-energized the society. You must provide the requisite energy. How do you provide the requisite energy? Well, first of all, conceptually, if you de-energize the society, that means there'll be mass death that obtains before long unless that 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 compensating energy is provided. If the water is not running, if the heating is not running, if critical supplies are not being uh, supplied or, or, or met, critical infrastructure uh, upkept, and military running police services, if kids are not in school, death obtains. We understand that. Look at Ukraine, food, food shortages in three or four days. What happens when you shut a society down obviously under duress there but mm -hmm. we did it through law and the government went home in almost all cases the government went and mirrored our own behavior they went to zoom rooms and they started governing by zoom and, and twitter dicta a population that they did not see whose circumstances they did not understand there was no feedback and now my lesson learned and it's in the in the exit strategy as well is that you must unfurl you must if you're the party imposing it, you have a conspicuous, a super obligation to compensate. On education, on food, on health, you have to even go door to door. Are you OK? Do you need anything? Your business is, has, has capital for two weeks, right? We'll top you up. We locked you down. We're not going to ask you to do an application that will require three months of processing and then we'll give you <laughs> Uh, we'll give you 50% and then audit the rest, uh, another 25% off of it, right? We're going to front end it because we know you need to survive. Or worse still, we're not going to lock you down and say, oh, sorry, you went out of business. We were all doing, we are doing our best, right? That's, that's criminal, that's policy criminality, right? And it just done with a smile. And so government must unfurl. So I never want to hear the civil services 
or um, or the political class, cabinet, prime minister, premiers, public health officers who are fortunately paid on direct deposit through taxation power, right? That's they're legitimately paid on the on public dollars. They don't have to worry, but they must understand that as soon as they remove the, the wherewithal to make a living from the society, they must compensate that. And here they misinterpreted their their direct liquidity for the general condition and over time as some sort of virtue. Now we know what we're doing. We're we're doing the public health. You Philistines, you don't understand. You don't understand what we're doing. We know we know this is dangerous. No, the Philistines are either out of school or they've been broken socially or they've gone out of business. We must have compensated them or provided compensating energy right at the front end. Now that's counterintuitive, but it's a must for the next time. It's a must. And uh, that's not ingrained in our thinking. All this counterintuitive stuff is is very difficult also to parlay on on social media. If you say something counterintuitive, social media is very literal. It's said, no, no, better if we all stay safe. Yeah, 2000 likes, right? No, 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 it's better if you if someone goes out door to door to see whether the child is in school because that's how you keep the child alive. Uh, yeah, not much room for nuance on social media. Oh, so you want nuance, people to go door to door spreading the virus and everyone's going to die? You want people to especially die? Especially if you're not yeah. controlling the algorithm. Especially if you're not controlling the algorithm. Everyone stay safe, yeah. right? And especially if government is is flooding the social media with with platforms. So that's a, a huge lesson learned that other countries, by the way, understand. Countries with great mobilization power, Israel, uh, most of the Northeast and some of the Southeast Asian countries, uh, a few of the post-Soviet states, uh, America to a, a greater extent than us, mobilization power, and we did the reverse. We glorified the passive and we went to sleep. And in sleep you die as a country. Well, this has been quite a fascinating discussion. I'd love to have you on the show again. I think feel like we could go for another two hours. But uh, is there anything you'd like to leave with people in closing? Uh, you know, where can they follow your your work? And uh, I'll tell people to follow you on Twitter. You may not be super happy. You'll get some new followers though. You can share happy links to, on happy there. Happy for people to to follow me on 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 Twitter and uh, on uh, for the National Exit uh, Plan from the Canada Science and Policy Committee to Exit the Pandemic, which co-chaired by Quadra Karamantang, and we got people from all over the country. Uh, really, I think uh, a heroic group. You can find the plan on i21cq.com, the Institute for 21st Century Questions. The same with the work on the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids post-pandemic. And my own work everywhere. You can, I guess you could search it online. There's a lot of stuff. And my new book is called Canada Must Think for Itself, 10 Theses for Our Country's Survival and Success in the 21st Century. You can buy that as well. I, I won't uh, be upset if you do. <laughs> the final thing I just want to leave your distinguished listeners with is, is please remember that it's been a difficult two years for Canada. We have a conspicuous obligation for our young and the kids. A conspicuous obligation. There is no tomorrow. We must fix this problem. I'm not just talking about masks, vaccination, all of this stuff and socialism off to the races 
learning, fun, singing, preparing. It's our duty. It's our duty as adults in a moral sense, and it's our duty as a country if we want to have a country. So I'm super focused on that, and I want people to to understand that every time they look at kids. There are 200,000 kids now that should have been in school, were having a normal childhood, and they were, it was broken through uh, national stupidity. And I'm not for sentimentalizing stupidity, only for <laughs> correction only for correction. So I thank you very much for for the great questioning and uh, and look forward to following your own work and, and to reconnecting soon, Spencer, and hello to everyone in Manitoba. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Great discussion and your voice is definitely needed in this country, so we appreciate it. Thanks, Spencer.